Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's bring in Tom Stringfellow, Chief Investment Strategist for Argent Trust Company. Tom, what do you make of this market this week? It feels it looks like a buy the dip. Should we read anything more into that? Yeah, I think you said it right there. And, and you know, just going back and looking at what's happened in the last uh, oh, year or so since uh, about this time last year, buying the dip made a lot of sense. You know, the market dropped down to about the 50-day moving average, and you'd see support coming right in. And then all of a sudden, you know, we started hearing about a contagion uh, that, you know, for many seemed to come out of nowhere, you know, that really started look, uh, hitting the markets on Monday. And, you know, the question of buying the dip, uh, you know, <laughs> people started, you know, scratching their head. But, you know, today looks like it might be another reversal. And, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll say buy the dip until it's proven otherwise. And, and right now I'd say uh, markets are kind of excited about, you know, it's kind of a, a stealth day for investors, but it's a pretty big day for the markets. We have had a number of um, big market commentators come out and say this dip could be could get bigger. Scott Minard, for example, was telling me yesterday from Guggenheim, he thinks we could go down 10, maybe 20 percent. And that isn't dramatic compared to what we've heard from a lot of the big banks on Wall Street. So, what 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 do you think um, a correction will look like here? Yeah, corrections are inevitable. Yeah, we we talk about them. They're healthy for the market. It it gives investors time to kind of reassess where uh, you know earnings make sense and where to reallocate. But the fact is, when it happens, you know we all cringe and you know scramble for our monitors and talk to clients. But yeah. Uh, we always talk about, you know, what's normal and what's healthy is in that 10% uh, correction. Where you get into problem is when you start realizing that uh, 10% on a market level a day is a little more significant than, you know, a few years back. Uh, but I still think that, you know, there's going to be something that it's going to be an outlier event. It's not going to be something expected that's going to cause market nervousness. And it's not going to be a one or two day event. You know, there will be sell offs and that will give us this opportunity to, to you know, really look at the markets. But, you know, when you still look at what the underlying support for the market is, we still have, you know, strong earnings growth. It's slowing down, but, uh, you know, it's certainly above trend from what we have seen over the last several years. We've still got uh, uh, Fed that's giving us liquidity, which, uh, you know, we'll find out what it really means in a, you know, in a few more hours, uh, you know, from you know what Chairman Powell says. And, you know, you know, let's just not forget that, you know, when we're sitting at rates near zero, investors are looking for uh, places to park cash with some upside opportunity. So, you know, correction's inevitable. You know, we're going to scramble to try and understand what it means this time. But, uh, you know, I don't look for, you know, that recessionary impact anytime soon. All right, Tom. So to the extent that people have what Tom Keene will call the courage to be in the market, are you more inclined on the equity side to be in kind of the cyclical, maybe a reopening type scenario? Or are you comfortable with what has worked for, you know, better part of a decade, the, the big top line growth tech stories? 
You know, I think it's it's really is a combination of both, and the reason is that you know when you look at what has been, you know, sustainable over the last several months. You know, once we got past the uh, pandemic. Uh, uh, clearance, and we saw you know stay at home, work at home stocks really moving. A number of those stocks still have good growth prospects, and they're changing the way we work and we live and we play. Those are good quality stocks. But meanwhile, those cyclical stocks are starting to come back. Uh, just <clears throat> jumping on a plane over the weekend, looked around. Flights were full, airplanes are full, and lo and behold, everybody's wearing masks, so there's kind of a new normal there. Cyclicals are coming in. You just talked about the energy markets on a rally. I think you know that's really reading into the fact that economies are coming back, but it's going to be looking a little bit different now as we adjust to you know whatever covid variant looks like you know we're starting to see steel manufacturing you know coming up to all-time high so the economies are building up to you know what looks like traction in the economy i think that looks a little bit different than what we saw a year ago but it's going to be kind of a i think a bifurcated of both good quality growth and followed by good quality value stocks that have, you know, a, a growth factor in them that's going to uh, really explain how this economy is going to pull out and, you know, start maintaining its traction that we've seen for the last several months. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Tom Stringfellow there. He is Chief Investment Strategist at Argent Trust Company, uh, talking to us about his outlook ahead of the Federal Reserve finishing their two-day meeting today, and we are going to hear from Jerome Powell um, a little bit later on. I guess yep. it is, what, just about four hours from now. Well, it is Fed Day, and that's a big day here at Bloomberg at Television and Radio. Uh, so we're going to be all over that. The Fed will decide. It's big. It's big. It's kind of like you know playoff day for ESPN or something. So it's a big day here. We certainly cover. Dude, it comes once a month, though. I know, and that's what we love about it. It would it be sweet if the playoffs were once a month. <laughs> all right, let's bring in an expert to kind of help us kind of preview what we might hear and see and read. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO of Quill, uh, CEO and Director of Intelligence for Quill Intelligence. Also, former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. And the highlight is she's actually in the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. Whoa. It's great. First time back in the building. Yes. So happy to be it's here. It's so cool. That and I noticed awesome. on, on Bloomberg Television, Matt, Jeff Curry from Goldman Sachs, he's also in the Bloomberg Television Studio. So people are coming out and they're coming into our offices, coming into our studios, which makes it so much better. Uh, so, Danielle, great to see you. Give us a sense of what we should be looking for today. It feels like the tapering discussion has been so well telegraphed. What should I be looking for? It has been so well telegraphed, but on the other hand, and I'm starting, I, I sound like an economist, but hmm. on the other hand, Jay Powell's got a lot of reasons to be reticent, and I don't think that there's a great enough appreciation for that right now. Uh, you know, in the post-COVID world, we've forgotten what Fed traditions are. And there are certain things that the Fed does not do regardless of where we are in economic cycles and before or after pandemics. They don't step into the into the middle of any type of political event or political morass. The debt ceiling, the budget resolution, the, the drama that's being played out in the Beltway. The Fed does not make major policy shifts in the midst. That is the tradition. And the Fed also if you look back through history, does not make big moves in the month of December. Mm -hmm. So 
I understand the telegraphing, the broadcasting, the fact that the market is ready, the appearance that we're not going to get a taper tantrum, because if we were going to get a taper tantrum, we would have gotten that when Jay Powell first acknowledged that the discussion had started, and that really didn't happen. But again, the flip side of it is, there are certain traditions, and we're starting to see foreclosures rise. Right before I stepped into this into the studio, Cox Automotive came out with a report and said that 50% of potential auto buyers are now going to pull back and wait because of prices, not mm. low supply. Mm. We're hearing the same thing coming out on housing, that prices are becoming a deterrent, not just low supply. Yeah. So there's a different narrative that started to emerge, and Jay Powell will be paying attention to that, especially as you hear one company after another talk about the labor pool refilling and more applicants um, putting, in, uh, putting in for some of these job openings. He'll be looking for wage inflation to fall. Yeah, we, we uh, actually just had a headline cross that existing home sales fell um, 2%. And just this morning, I was talking to a friend who decided not to buy a Kia because the dealer wanted ten grand over MSRP and wouldn't budge. A Kia. <laughs> a Kia. And what do, they say, what do they say that the cure for high prices is? High prices. Yep. Yeah, well, I guess that's the case here. Um, you know, you've got so many other issues uh you've got the china the the common prosperity crackdown um you've got the supply chain snarl ups which i guess are 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 part of that high prices uh issue um and you've got um the the labor shortage i wonder if especially the latter what's your take on the labor shortage now that we see extended unemployment benefits coming off are we going to see the labor shortage ease uh, again, I did just this morning, I read a laundry list of companies that have come out on calls and said that the shortage is alleviating before their very eyes now that all 50 states um, have indeed stepped away from these programs. I live in Texas where the, the supplemental benefits uh, went away in July, and I can tell you just by driving around the Warren Buffett fashion and kicking the tires, mm-hmm. I don't see as many help wanted signs mm. as I once did. I'm not waiting as long in restaurants. I don't have to wait as long to get an Uber or a Lyft. There are certain things that are just oh, in yeah, front Uber of you. Uber said they had a huge spike in new drivers, so a- they've, exactly. they've really added a ton. A- yeah. And plus, it, but Uber rates are up 80%. Why not? Um, some time that I've spent in Florida with my family, for example, I've heard people say, I'm not going back to my job at Disney because I can make double that as a Lyft or an Uber driver. Wow. Yeah. Well, again, fares are up 80%. But, but to your question about (laughs) wage inflation. But Disney would be a lot more fun. I feel like Disney (laughs) would be so fun, especially if you get to dress up as the mouse. Okay. When it's 100 degrees and humid. Okay, yeah. let me get back to me on that. Um, but, but the point is, this is what Jay Powell has been waiting for. This is why he keeps saying, let me see September and October. Let me see those non-farm payroll reports come out before we make any big decisions. And again, I will bring back to you the debt ceiling. And there are major implications. We've just had uh, come to light Um, meeting minutes from an emergency Federal Open Market Committee from October 2013. There is actually a blueprint for what the Fed can do to alleviate a potential debt default if extraordinary measures that Treasury Secretary Yellen is implementing are exhausted. You can, in theory, default on the Treasuries that the Fed owns and really yeah. <laughs> not, it, it's called a strategic default and, 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 and not technically default. Fitch and Moody's won't like it, though. 
What what are the chances? Like I was talking with Matt Winkler, our editor in chief emeritus, about this this morning. What are the chances that the United States might, you know, not because we can't afford to, but for political reasons, miss an interest payment on its debt? Well, that was exactly what I was just describing. And yeah. again, there is a blueprint that has been drawn up between the Treasury and the Fed that explains how we would go about doing that because so the first Fed owns default a quarter on the of Fed's the market. Debt. First default on the Fed's debt and then default on everyone else's well, later but as ju- a last resort. Just the Fed's debt. It's just a quarter of the Treasury market. They, they own a big yeah. chunk of it. So you can theoretically buy a lot of time. And it, you, you have to remember, they're, they're accounting maneuvers. The Federal Reserve remits Treasury interest back to the Treasury once a year. That's how accounting at, at the Fed works. So as far as they're concerned, they're just moving money around on a ledger until the debt ceiling is resolved. All right. So one of the things I'm wondering if the, the, the Fed is looking at, Fed Chairman Powell is looking at, is we're hearing from many sectors of the economy, many companies, that the supply chain, it's not getting better. And it may even be getting worse. We take a look at the number of ships docked off the coast of Los Angeles and, and Long Beach, and it, mm-hmm. it's, get, it's growing. Yep. And we're getting into that killer, you know, kind of season of, you know, shopping and Christmas and holidays and all that kind of stuff. Is that on their, their radar? Uh, it, it really is. And just listening to a lot of, of manufacturers in the Texas area, the Houston port is hopping. Yep. Other ports, you know, companies are trying to get around that, the three big West Coast port logjam because it's historic. It's, 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 it's as bad as it's ever been. And freight costs have become, you know, come to matter. They used to be a small line item, yeah. but they're enormous. So even though we're seeing iron ore prices come down, and obviously we've talked about lumber and corn, little bits and pieces here of input costs coming down, but freight surcharges, and, and you can, I, I'm hearing anecdotes of, of freights arriving and, and companies saying, if you want the merchandise, by the way, you're going to have to pay up. It'll be another $50,000. Yeah, and, and some of it just sits there, right? Do? Paul, weren't you saying yesterday yeah. that somebody had a, a, sh- a shipment come in and it just sat in the port for two weeks? Yeah, it just sat in the port. It just sounds like something, I guess we thought about this. Yeah, okay, there's a supply chain, but it will work itself out as the world re- reopens. It seems to be a bigger issue. And again, we're hearing it from more and more and more companies. Well, and I think... Uh, it, on, on a broader level, I think that companies are also kind of starting to hide behind, for lack of a better term, okay. the ability to really ramp up pricing behind the auspices of this supply chain disruption. But again, pay attention to what's happening underneath the surface. Pay attention to things like Cox Automotive saying, it ain't a supply issue, people. 50% of buyers, 50% is a big percent, 50% of buyers, and you're seeing this in the University of Michigan, buying conditions for cars and and houses. They're saying, basta, this is too much. I'm stepping back because of the price shock. Yeah, interesting. All right, so much to look at there. Danielle DiMartino Booth, CEO and Director of Intelligence for Quill Intelligence uh, and former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, I guess the folks that were, you know, buy the dip type of people, they were right yet again. The market's up uh, over 1% here on the S&P and Dow. So there you go. Let's check in with Alan uh, Adelman, Senior Fund Manager and Senior Research Analyst for Frost Investment Advisors. They have about $5.1 billion in assets under management. Alan, it seems like the buy the dip folks were right again. Is, Is that your take? Paul, thank you. Good morning. And... I'm still not convinced, frankly, uh, the market to us feels a bit fatigued, 
just kind of given the rapid pace that we've seen over the last year or so. So a lot of our smart money investors, and, you know, we're engaged with a lot of, of, of investors, both institutional as well as individuals in Texas, are actually looking to buy the dips. But the expectations are that the market is a bit fatigued, and we could see it is September going on October, and, and we could see a little bit more of a pullback. We have seen, uh, looking back at the S&P 500 moves, about there were 110 1% moves in 2020. And so far in 2021, we've only seen 35. So it's definitely a market that has lost some energy in terms of um, you know the, the size of, of moves here. And we've heard a lot more people, Alan, uh, calling for a pullback, calling for a correction, not saying, you know, that they're bears, but saying we expect a, f- a 10 percent drop or even a 20 percent drop. What do you think about the, the possibility of the latter? I think, well, first off, I would say that we're still very constructive on the on the U.S. large cap equity market. We're fully invested at this juncture. You know, we'd look for further opportunities, but we're fully invested which should should show you where you know where we're at from a market perspective but you're constructive and you put your money where your mouth is no and well i mean i'm not trying to be a wise guy but we put our clients money where our mouth is yes <laughs> and that's even more of a conviction from a frost perspective so do we expect some kind of correction we would welcome it uh, we think that right now we're kind of in a purgatory period, Paul, relative to, you know, we're not yet in earnings season. We've got all sorts of exogenous types of activities going on. You know, Evergrande is, is, seems to not be quite as the topic du jour, but nonetheless, you know, you've got, you've got situations like that. You've got the congressional circus going on in Washington relative to the debt ceiling. So, there are, are non-corporate events that really could trigger investors at this particular um, juncture. And, and we're looking forward to earnings seasons. But, you know, we've got, realistically, we've got a month to go before we get back into that. So, Alan, you're fully invested in the market. Are you invested for a reopening type of trade, i.e. some more cyclical uh, parts of the uh, market? Or... Are you uh, kind of in that camp where I'm sticking with the tried and true top line growth stories, tech, healthcare, things like that? Well, the short answer, Paul, is both. And we take a, a blend approach, so to speak, in terms of the latter, the names that you are referring to on the growth side, technology, um, you know, some of the healthcare names, for sure. Um, but we're also invested in the cyclical names. And if you think about it from a portfolio construction weighting perspective, um, we're, we're probably, we're not probably, we are more heavily weighted to the growth segment than we are to the secular um, exposure perspective. So that's, you know, that's, that's where we're at today. What do you think about or how much does it matter to you that we get more fiscal uh, spending. In terms of, for example, the infrastructure bill, it looks difficult right now, but it's it's a huge number. How much does it matter to, to you for your clients? I would say, well, for our clients, it's a broader topic. For us specifically, 
you know, we really pay attention, Paul, uh, to, I mean, you're an analyst. So, I mean, we take a very much of a bottom-up approach and we talk to our companies and we listen to them all, all the time. We do channel checks. We do all of the things that a fundamental equity manager would do. We're managing portfolios, uh, diversified portfolios where we're, we're investing in literally every economic sector in the S&P um, or our benchmark. So we do take that approach. Having said that, I would say that the infrastructure bill over the long term would have positive ramifications for for the economy at large. These are things that are required, are necessary. Whether we get into some of the softer things, time will tell. But but I think our, our client base and where we're coming from is we have a high level of confidence that ultimately we'll get at least the hard infrastructure bill passed, you know, sometime in the near future. And that will bode well as we get into 2022 and 23 and beyond. But I'm repeating myself, which I guess I'd like to do. But <laughs> having said that, the whole atmosphere in Washington is still problematic Yep. in terms of not being able to make a decision, no, even absolutely. when it's right. Not being able to come together. Alan, thanks so much for joining us. Alan Edelman there from Frost Investment Advisors. I want to get over to the Chief Investment Officer of Global Equities at Invesco. George Evans joins us. George Evans joins us now, and uh, we're going to hear about your market views. But I want you to first, George, explain your mantra, investment themes to us. So certainly. So good morning, and good morning, everyone. Um, so we we run. Uh, I've been running a, an international strategy uh, at Invesco. It was Oppenheim before, since uh, 1996. So we're just over 25 years, and we've followed the same four themes. Um, over the entire arc of that time. So there's mantra stands for the, the four themes, which is mass affluence, new technology, restructuring, and aging. So, so we want to be focused on areas of the global economy that we think are set to grow structurally over many, many years and to find the winning uh, companies and invest in those stocks uh, accordingly. So uh, they're connected. So mass affluence is basically about the uh, the world getting um, getting rich, and particularly after the um, the fall of the Berlin Wall, the massive increment to uh, growth and wealth, growth of wealth in the emerging markets. What's led to that, by the way, George? I mean, we see it; we all see it, and the number of millionaires and billionaires just soaring everywhere yeah. in the Western world, and in, well, in China as well. What What's led to that? Well, I think the, the biggest thing is the uh, the way that the whole world more or less embraced a, a, a greater orientation towards market economies after the collapse of the Berlin Wall. So mm. if we look at pre-Berlin Wall, we're looking at really only about 15% of the global population that lived in countries that had market-oriented economies. After the collapse of communism, we saw more and more of the world embrace market economies, and that's been the principal driver to wealth creation. So you know, China's gotten, you know, grown staggeringly fast uh, over the last uh, 30, 40 years. We've seen you know, huge increments to growth in many other emerging markets. So it's really gone from you know, a, a small proportion of the global population engaged in sort of living in market economies to 
you know, probably now well over well over half in, in, engaged in it. So that's so, a, so now a lot more people reason. need to buy German cars, stay at five star hotels, and drink Johnny Walker Blue Label. <laughs> uh, absolutely, everyone. Um, you know, like you know, people people go from uh, you know riding bicycles, walking or riding bicycles to motorcycles to cars. They get bank accounts, they get credit cards, they like to go on fancy holidays, and uh, as you rightly point out, people like to drink better <laughs> beer and wine and spirits. So, George, give us you know maybe a practical example or two where this mantra has taken you uh, into some you know sectors that have been good for your fund over the last twenty five years. Okay, so uh, let's pick luxury goods. So we luxury goods. Uh, this is one of the you know. It, in talking about luxury goods, it's an area where you must be invested internationally because all of the big brands are mostly based in Europe. So we've uh, so things like Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy. Um, we uh, there's Hermes, which we own, um, and there are several other big brands that are all pretty much European based. The well over fifty percent of luxury goods sales now go to uh, people that are from emerging markets, and uh, the Chinese have been a major driver of this growth over the last over the last uh, ten twenty years. So, as people get wealthier, they like to signal where they are, you know, in, in terms of relative wealth. And one of the ways that they principally do that is by buying um, a lot of luxury goods, whether it's handbags, expensive clothes, jewelry fancy watches, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So this has been a, you know, a relentless structural growth um, over the last 10, 20 years. And it's got to the point where um, you know, earlier this year, there was a period, I think, of a couple of weeks where uh, uh, Ben Arno, who is the uh, majority owner, well, he owned, he's got the biggest stake in Louis Vuitton. And the third uh, richest was man in the world. Weeks, the, the, the richest man in the world. I mean, this is a very, very powerful sector. There's very, very good long-term structural growth. We tend to prefer true luxury rather than just sort of expensive fashion products because the, we believe that the, um, the, the demand is a lot more sort of robust and less variable uh, for that. So that's uh, an example in, in, uh, in mass affluence. Uh, we've also... Um, you know, whilst the U.S. Uh, has you know, premium positions sort of across the beachfront in much of technology, there are a number of companies um, in the international opportunity set that have been extraordinarily well positioned. So uh, a large holding for us is the Dutch company ASML. It is effectively a monopoly at the leading edge of semiconductor production equipment. Uh, with the, the latest EUV equipment that allows uh, the, uh, the etching of extremely sort of fine diameter, uh, fine diameter chip. So that's, that's been uh, a share that has done extraordinarily well over the last one, three, uh, and five years. And then, of course, um, the largest foundry company, chip foundry company in the world is based in Taiwan. That's uh, TSMC, Taiwan um, Semiconductor. So... I think that one of the most important things in thinking about international is that there are, first of all, a lot of extraordinarily good uh, world-leading companies based abroad. 
Um, but it is extraordinarily important to be a stock picker, to be highly, highly selective, because a lot of people point at the point to the uh, uh, the, the outperformance of the S and P versus any international, all you know, the collective of international indices over, particularly the last twelve years, mm. um, and part of that is because. Of, a lot of the international indices are not as well constructed as the S&P. They are not populated with companies of such sort of you know, uniform, well, not uniform, but right. such excellence as, as, as populates all of the S&P. So there are clearly sectors, you know, with our theme approach that we have totally yep. avoided structurally over 10 and 20 years. So we are very low on financials. We're very low on industrial materials. We're very low on energy. Right. And these areas have all been sort of structurally well represented in the non-U.S. indices, but there are areas where there hasn't been a, a tremendous right. amount of, of uh, wealth creation. All right, George, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your, your mantra strategy uh, for 25 years. George Evans, Chief Investment, Chief Investment Officer of Global Equities for Invesco. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.